This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I'm really excited to have Dave Feldman. He's a senior software engineer who became obsessed with cholesterol after seeing his own levels rise on a ketogenic diet. This led to his observation of the lipid energy model to help explain these changes. And he has since conducted over 50 experiments that demonstrate rapid changes of lipid levels using this new understanding. Welcome. I'm really excited. I've been really looking forward to this interview. Well, thank you for having me, Cynthia. Absolutely. And, you know, I have to provide some background information for the listeners. Many people know that I worked in cardiology as an MP for 16 years, so I can geek out on some cholesterol. But I recall last year, I think I was in the gym and I was listening to your interview with Tro and Brian on Low Carb MD podcast. And I was like, oh my gosh, this all makes so much sense. And so especially about being a hyper responder. And so I thought to myself, eventually when I catch up with myself, I absolutely wanted to bring you on the podcast. And I'm so glad that it came to fruition. How have you been doing? I know this has been an interesting year in 2020. It certainly has been. And certainly this week, I feel like I've, Mm -hmm. it's been a really good week. Honestly, there's some news I may actually be kind of breaking here, depending on when you actually air this. But we, a couple of days ago, the team and I, we met with the head of the center that we're looking to use for the lean mass hypersponder study. And I'm happy to say that I'm feeling very optimistic we're going to be kicking this thing off pretty soon. We still have to submit an IRB that's, you know, an approval process that needs to happen first. And then past that point, we may actually be entering the phase where we do recruitment for people who may be able to help us out with the study. Well, I may be one of those people. When I say that both personally and professionally, I'm really interested in your work. I can say that without provocation. So you mentioned that a few years ago, you started a ketogenic diet and you noticed these changes in your cholesterol, but let's back up a little bit. And for listeners, I think we're familiarized with the term cholesterol, but what does that actually represent? Why should we be concerned about it? How has the paradigm shifted? And before you answer that, you know, I was trained in the 1990s. And so medicine back then was all, it was anti-cholesterol, lower cholesterol as much as possible, eat lots of fake fats. And, you know, it was the bastardization of fats. And so I certainly propagated that until I knew better But let's, you know, share with the listeners what really makes cholesterol special, why it's so important and why we want to be, you know, we don't want to be fearful of it. Yeah. So I'm obviously a bit obsessed with cholesterol as (laughs) it is. I like to joke and it's not really a joke. It's sort of the intellectual property of the animal kingdom. It's a synthesized molecule, an organic molecule that literally binds every single cell we have in our body. You don't have life at least in the animal kingdom, without cholesterol. It's just not possible. And it's actually what allowed us to have these cells, unlike the plant kingdom, that have just the right amount of uh, give and flexibility, but at the same time, enough stiffness that we can become large multicellular systems that can actually move around. We can beat plants in a race any day. So yes, that became relevant. But on top of that, there's so many different internal uses for cholesterol within the body For example, it's a precursor to many different hormones that we make use of. And probably on the more advanced level that I'm very interested in is it's very relevant for the making of these particles that we use to move lipids around in the body. 
you could call them lipid carrying proteins or their shortened and more commonly known name is lipoproteins. That kind of opened up the whole interest for me because like you, I only heard about cholesterol as a pejorative. Like it, the higher cholesterol, the worse it was. And we only ever hear of it in the context of it being in the blood. I myself had no idea that cholesterol was anywhere other than in the blood. And it just seemed to be a mistake on the part of the body if it brought any of it in from the diet and then put it into your bloodstream, because then that would be problematic. It would never, you know, therefore kill you the more of it that you had over time. I think it's really important for people to be able to make those connections because for me personally, and for me, you know, this conversation again is both personal and professional, but for years and years and years, you work in cardiology, use a lot of lipid lowering agents. And I would wonder why, and I include my parents in this, I would start seeing cognitive changes, you know, based on some of these drugs and some of these methodologies and, you know, understanding that cholesterol is more than just what's in the blood is a really important first step. And then the hormonal regulation piece in the body, we don't want our cholesterol to be too low because that can be, you know, a predictor of morbidity and mortality. If it's way too low, that impacts nearly every part of our bodies. So when you kind of started with this ketogenic diet, I'm presuming that you had some baseline labs that you were able to reflect back on. But what were you surprised by when you looked at your labs before you started keto and after starting keto? What were the differences that you were seeing? Well, certainly before I started keto, I was very familiar with what my doctor kept bringing to my attention was a low HDL cholesterol. And it hovered, I want to say at around 40. Okay. I forget my total cholesterol, but my LDL was something in the neighborhood of around 130. And he would say, well, I'd like it if it were a little bit lower, but 130 is pretty average for what I see in my practice. And I now know that that's actually true. Typically 130 for a, a male is pretty common if there's no other intervention per se. But my triglycerides, which I hardly paid attention to then was below 100, which I'm happy to know about now. I go on a ketogenic diet. And like so many other stories, I'm sure you've heard, I feel great. Everything's wonderful. I was training for marathons at the time and I felt like a whole new lease. Uh, it was almost like I found a cheat code to life and lost a lot of weight that I wasn't even intending to lose. I wasn't thought of by my wife or my family as being overweight. I was about the weight you would expect for the age that I was which kind of gets into a larger subject of how we just sort of assume that we weigh more because everybody in our class reunion weighs more, that kind of thing. But all of a sudden I'm back to the weight that I was in college without even trying. And what happens is again, like so many other people, I'm thinking my blood work's going to be stellar and that everything about it's going to be fantastic. And that my doctor is just going to gush over me the entire visit. And I was mostly right except for this one thing, my total and LDL cholesterol skyrocketed. And I was even ready. I was ready for it to be, okay, maybe LDL won't be 130. Maybe it'll be 150 or 160. If so, then I'll do the subtraction particle test and see if they're big, fluffy versus small dense. I was more into that at the time, but no, it had jumped up into the 200s. I want to say it was maybe 230, 240, something like that. And I really got concerned and if you know engineers, you know how we are. You know that we want to get under the hood. If it's something that drives us, something like fear, we'll work that much harder. So I started reading everything that I could about lipidology. And what I found that was so fascinating, I know I tell this story a lot, but it really was cathartic, 
was that there were all these things about this system that moves cholesterol around in our body that resembles a network, something I'm already very familiar with as a software engineer. And, you know, meta tags and headers and all of the things that you would hope to see in a network that works well, I could see there. So then the next question was, okay, is it a network that works well? And that was the beginning of the inversion pattern where I started doing different tests, where I found I could manipulate my numbers quite a bit. And I went, you know what? I think that this is really more an energy, a, a fat-based energy distribution network. And that's going to be a big part of the story. And that's what it's looking like right now. It's really fascinating. I know that, you know, when I was on your website and looking at you know, these wonderful analogies, you know, talking about the cruise ship, talking about these boats. And I think for people that are trying to understand something that seems very intangible for the average person, you've been able to dilute complicated information and make it very accessible, which I think is always a sign of a brilliant budding idea. And so, you know, you transitioned from you know, probably eating more like a potentially a standard American diet to keto, you're having all these benefits, you get these labs back, your doctor probably panics, which is typically what happens. And then you started kind of applying what I want to make sure that I reference it properly, the intro to lipid energy model. So let's talk a little bit, let's unpack that. And, and for people that are listening, when we're talking about low carb versus keto, I get a lot of questions about what does that represent? And typically, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, when we're looking at ketogenic diets, you know, less than 30 grams of net carbs a day, 30 grams of carbs, you know, the average American, I think the last statistic I read was anywhere from 200 to 400 grams of carbs a day. So when we're talking about low carb, low carb for someone could be 50 grams, it could be 75, it could be 100, but just kind of cutting against the grain of the more traditional, you know, westernized standard American diet is kind of what we're referring to. So let's talk about that lipid energy model, because I find this fascinating. And I think that listeners will be able to kind of put these pieces together to make more sense of what cholesterol actually represents and how it works in the body. Sure. And actually you've got some good timing here because I kind of have a new approach to how I want to talk about it that I think can be a little more intuitive for people. Now, yes, the term I like because it's pretty apt is we're talking about boats, lipids, and really lipids is kind of a larger class of fats, but really you can think of lipids as the things in this context that we're talking about that your body needs, but do not swim well in the blood because the blood is water-based and lipids are like oil. If you try to mix oil with water, you're gonna see what happens. It needs to flow with the bloodstream. So you need to put it into this kind of boat that's gonna carry it. Or there's another prominent protein that's always on standby in our bloodstream. You can kind of think of as like the life rafts that are called albumin and that can bind to lipids. But regardless, a lipid needs to get carried. It needs to have a carrier protein of some kind that our bodies make for that purpose to carry them. Now, you don't hear that much about albumin, but you do hear a lot about lipoproteins, even if you don't realize you're hearing about it. LDL stands for low density lipoprotein. And HDL actually stands for high density lipoprotein. And a fun fact to know and tell is that you'll hear about LDL cholesterol and HDL cholesterol as the good and bad cholesterol. It's really the same cholesterol. It's just where it's being found in a blood test. Is the cholesterol found predominantly on LDL boats or is it found on HDL boats? And then the cholesterol, that association can look good or bad in that context. So now let's talk about why this is relevant if you're low carb. 
you're low carb, particularly what you just talked about is very relevant. If you're extremely low carb, so you're definitely powered by fat, not a mix. Well, we love to talk about ketones because it's absolutely true. Our liver does turn a lot of the fat that we're getting into ketone bodies, which are hugely important to the brain because ketone bodies can cross the blood brain barrier and help power our brain. But I argue this frequently. I think it's more accurate to say we're not really on a keto diet. We're on a fatty acid diet. And it may not sound as sexy, I know, but a lot of those fatty acids are not broken down into ketones and are instead put together in a kind of package known as a triglyceride, tri for three, as in three fatty acids that are they're combined with a glycerol backbone. And that's the storage form of fat. But we have to turn it into that storage form of fat because that's the cargo that we're going to put onto these lipoprotein boats. And the liver is doing this all the time. It's, put, it's constantly putting cargo onto these lipoprotein boats and it sends them out. Now, I find that getting into the different types of lipoproteins can get a bit confusing, which is why I like this more simple model now. I'm just going to say triglyceride-rich lipoproteins leaving the liver. Those lipoproteins you're going to hear this term a lot, are ApoB containing lipoproteins. And that's the main protein that carries them. These ApoB lipoproteins, the best way for you to think about them is that they are provider lipoproteins. Their job is to provide lipids to the space outside of the liver, the periphery. They're boats that are there to deliver stuff to your cells. And either they're going to deliver them to your cells in need right now, for the most part, or they're going to deliver them to your fat cells known as adipocytes. But they're outbound, and you can think of it this way. Their job is to start big and get small. Now, here's the interesting part of the story. The interesting part is whenever something gets small at this level, at this molecular level, it has to shed its parts. It has to shed the thing that's outer layer. It's made of phospholipids. And on the inside, it has to lose some of its cholesterol cargo because it's part of the lipids that are on board. So here you have triglycerides ride sharing with cholesterol on these ApoB boats that start big and are meant to get small. Well, guess what? As they get smaller in dropping off the triglycerides, because they have to, they release more and more of those parts like the phospholipids and the free cholesterol that's part of their outer shell and the cholesterol that's on board. And guess what the acceptor lipoproteins are? Just only need to remember this one other kind. It's the HDLs. The HDLs, their job is to start small and get big. And so when they're out there in the periphery, they're waiting on, LD, on these ApoB-containing lipoproteins that are triglyceride-rich because as they're shedding their parts, they're picking up a lot of those parts. Now, there's a bit more to it than I'm saying right now, but that's actually a big part of what explains almost all the data that you're going to see in my experiments. You'll see, for example, that I'll consume a huge amount of fat, and this is often called the protocol. And what happens, we see that my, counterintuitively, we see my LDL cholesterol plummet. Why do I think it's plummeting? Because I think there's more turnover of those triglycerides and the cholesterol itself going into those fat cells, the adipocytes. But we also correspondingly see my HDL cholesterol go up. Why would my HDL cholesterol go up at the same time my LDL cholesterol is going down? Because the acceptor lipoproteins that are HDL, they're picking up more of those parts, as well as the cholesterol that started on board those ApoB boats. So 
tell me, am I doing okay so far at kind of painting the picture of what I believe is going on with the energy model? Yes. And I think it's so relevant because the last time I had labs drawn, (laughs) my nurse practitioner looked at me and said, I can't make sense of your lipid panel given, you know, your insulin's 2.1 and your fasting glucose is perfect. And I'm looking at your total cholesterol and your LDL and your HDL. And she said, empirically, I don't even know what to do with this, but I know you do. And so I was trying to explain to her, I said, I'm actually going to be bringing on you know, this cholesterol guru. And I really want you to listen to this because I think I'm a hyper responder. I think that is exactly what's driving this. So, you know, for the benefit of listeners who are not familiarized with what that is, and you talk about lean mass hyper responders, and I'm, you know, probably much like you and a lot of the listeners that are low carb, these are individuals that will struggle with doing multi-day fasts. And I find this particularly Mm -hmm. relevant because last year I had a 13 day hospitalization. I've not done a prolonged fast since then because it took me a long time to gain the healthy weight back, but I've never done really well with prolonged fasting. So what and who are these lean mass hyper responders? And for those people that are listening, who are wondering why their cholesterol panels and maybe their healthcare providers have panicked after they've gone low carb or ketogenic diets, this is a really good explanation and understanding of what is going on in our bodies in response to these changes in diet. Yes. So getting back to the model, it's because you're trafficking. You're having to traffic more of those lipoproteins because you're powered more by fat. Now, this may seem counterintuitive because I was just talking about triglycerides. So you might think, oh, well, wait a sec, Dave, you're telling me a lot of these fats are being packaged into triglycerides. Why is it that I see my triglyceride levels going down? And I would contend that that's because the turnover is at a much faster rate, that you're actually utilizing fat for fuel. And that doesn't just mean the fatty acids that are unesterified, that are you know floating around with the albumin. And it doesn't just mean the ketone bodies that you're making use of as well. It also means that this cargo, this triglyceride cargo on board these lipoproteins are being used. And if that's true, if you're trafficking more of these, you're trafficking more of these ApoB boats, you're going to have more LDL cholesterol because those ApoB boats, they start as VLDL and end up becoming LDL. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs 
in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients, and it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy provide mental clarity and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. So that cholesterol cargo, and then if you take a snapshot of your bloodstream, you're going to find all the parts in place that I was just describing. Your LDL cholesterol will be up. Why? Because many of those started as triglyceride-rich VLDL, that ApoB-style boat. But they convert, they get smaller and become LDL as they drop off that triglyceride cargo. So lean mass hyperresponders are super important because unlike just standard hyperresponders, you just see their LDL go up. They emphasize all three of these axes, the high LDL, the high HDL, the low triglycerides. And this, what's so exciting to me as an engineer is this goes across all genders, all ages, all ethnicities, and seems to be extremely uh, common in a metabolically healthy context. Now, if you think about it, you having come from medicine, you almost never see this level of ubiquity across these three axes, particularly with such a commonality among so many other people. But as you were just talking about how she couldn't figure out what to do, it's almost as if the lean mass hyperresponders are unicorns because typically what happens when you're seeing high LDL is you see it with what's known as atherogenic dyslipidemia, which is almost exactly the reverse profile. You tend to see low HDL and high triglycerides. And I do think that that's a big problem. I think that it, I worry that a lot of the association of higher LDL is downstream of what results from atherogenic dyslipidemia. Because basically, all you have to do is take the model I was just telling you, which would be in a healthy context, and then break it. What happens if you have a failure of the triglycerides being dropped off to tissues? Well, then you have less remodeling of VLDL, and therefore you see more VLDL in a blood test. You see higher triglycerides in a blood test. And guess what else? You also see lower HDL because there's less of this successful 
turnover. I'm sure you've seen that a lot in, unfortunately, a lot of challenge patients. Absolutely. And for listeners, we're really referring to individuals that have got fatty liver, that are insulin resistant or diabetic, they're metabolically inflexible. They very likely are obese, or at least at a minimum, they're overweight. And they could have, you know, vascular disease. And I think that in light of the way that our population is kind of evolving, and we're seeing a sicker, more metabolically inflexible population, I think it's really important if you have high triglycerides and low HGL, if you're insulin resistant, if you are in need of losing weight, I mean, these are things that you can augment and change significantly with dietary and lifestyle changes. And so I'm a huge fan, even though it's hard for people to wrap their heads around this, you know, fats and proteins we require in our diets. We don't require carbohydrates, although we're a very carb centric culture and that triggers people in really bad ways. It's very, very rarely do I get nasty emails about the podcast, but people just don't understand that our bodies, you know, for every hundred grams of protein we consume, our body can produce 60 grams of carbohydrates. It's a process called gluconeogenesis. And if our body couldn't do that, we would be in trouble. And so, you know, it gives you opportunities to really examine like what lifestyle choices am I making that are not healthy? And, you know, much to your point, you mentioned those high school reunions and you go to a high school reunion and it gives you a pivoting point because you're the same age as everyone in the room. And you're like, dang, some people look good and some people really look inflamed and very likely are not taking care of themselves. So it gives you opportunities to change things. This is not necessarily all written in stone that this is, you know, if you just have one lipid profile that looks really poor, or you're told that you're insulin resistant, or you're struggling with weight loss, that there's something you can't do about it. There's a lot you can do. And so, you know, for these individuals that are lean mass hyper responders, you had kind of alluded to in the beginning of our discussion that, you know, you're doing a lot of work in this area. And I think for me, having been a clinician for a long time now, I feel like I've kind of finally graduated to a point where I can say that a long time ago when I started as a clinician, it's really nice to know that we can evolve, shift and change, that we don't have to remain rigid because if we were still thinking in that rigid mindset and there weren't people like yourself that were doing work to challenge, you know, this outdated dogma, I talk a lot about this, how really important that is. So, you know, from that point, so for yourself, I know that you do a lot of experimentation. I was on your website. I was curious to know, and a lot of the questions that came off of Twitter last night, people were curious to know, like when you were doing your N of one, meeting just you as yourself, what kind of gave you the idea to kind of practice with, you know, drawing blood more frequently, how to kind of hack, someone used that term. How do I hack my cholesterol panel? How do I hack my labs? And I said, you know, I'll certainly ask you because I think this is interesting. You've been tinkering with yourself and I think it's a great part of experimentation in a very you know, safe way. Yeah. So it, I should first emphasize that while it was very exciting at the point where I found that indeed I could consume a lot of fat, it would plummet my cholesterol numbers. And this was, you know, you could call it a scientific party trick of sorts in that it helped both establish that the energy model could work. And I liked that there were so many other people who spontaneously replicated it because that gave us a base of knowledge. And it seems to have about an 85% success rate thus far of the people who actually undergo this. The darker side of that is I actually discourage people from doing that for say an annual blood test or something along those lines. That The truth is you do wanna have an honest relationship with your doctor where the data that they're seeing is the, you know, is a baseline of what you actually have so that they have a, a stronger sense of it. Now, 
I realize a lot of people will say, yeah, but my doctor just wants to see lower LDL. And so there are some people who will say, you know what, give me one week. Let me come back and like take my blood test again. And the, the test I'll have, you'll like more. I'm not going to say as much in that case, because at least they got the baseline if it was something like annual. But that said, I still would want to encourage them to bring that information to their doctor as well. Here's what I did differently. You're not going to believe it, but I just consumed a whole bunch of saturated fat over the next three days before this test was taken. And a lot of times those doctors end up reaching out to us later. They go, you know, I, I didn't actually realize just how much these numbers change. And I think that that's probably one of the biggest things I really want to put forward for people who may not even be pro low carb is please consider if you just saw like 1% of 1% of my experiments, recognize just how rapidly these numbers change based on the context of the last few days. And think about how many people are put on lifelong medical therapy based on a single annual blood test because they and their doctors think it's a, a very static number. And that if it changed a lot, then there's nothing they can do about it. I would much rather somebody go from keto to something more like low carb or just taking on carbs in general to drop their LDL than to take medicine to drop their LDL if the lifestyle change could be done. And again, this isn't medical advice per se. This is just more my personal preference is I'm always going to lean towards lifestyle changes. And if it turned out it really was you going keto your doctor's stressed or you're stressed. And it's just as simple as, hey, I just need to add 75, you know, 100 grams more carbs, even if it's a trade-off, but it's a trade-off that's going to make me a lot less stressed. I'm all for it if that's what you want to do. Well, and I think that's really valuable. I think transparency with your healthcare provider goes without question. You know, you should be upfront if you are tinkering and experimenting and the one thing that I found and, you know, my Western medicine trained peers were always very supportive of my focus on nutrition, they would kind of say, I would say, you know, it all starts with food. It really does. And we don't give lifestyle modifications enough credit. It's certainly not the mainstay of the current medical model. And I have a very wonderful working relationship with my Western medicine peers. So I want to be really clear. They're doing great work. And certainly this year has proven that, you know, in light of, you know, what we've all been dealing with, but let's pivot a little bit. And I think when, you know, we're looking at, you know, cholesterol and, you know, I certainly was enjoying some of the questions that came in. I thought it was interesting. There were some people that were still kind of fixated on, well, if I'm ketogenic and I'm still insulin resistant, is that acceptable? That was one of the more interesting questions. And so I thought about that, but I was going to allow you the opportunity to kind of answer that because it came up more than once. People were saying, I'm still insulin resistant and I'm ketogenic. What am I doing wrong? Or is that even acceptable? And so I obviously didn't have lab work to look at, but they were still defining themselves as insulin resistant. And I don't know if they were just looking at fasting cholesterol and like hemoglobin A1C, or if they were also looking at a fasting insulin or what was encompassing that diagnosis. So curious, because I definitely wanted to get to a couple people's questions, some of which were really interesting and creative. Yeah. So insulin resistance is actually, it's a term I myself and many other people have a problem with. Because a lot of times it doesn't make its own distinction as to how much is physiological insulin resistance versus pathological. Mm -hmm. There's a certain amount of physiological insulin resistance that we could argue is actually appropriate and necessary for that matter, particularly in a fat adapted context. The problem is, is that oftentimes it's conflated with, for example, having high A1C, high fasting glucose, hyperinsulinemia itself, having high insulin. The first thing that I would say with just about anybody is 
try as best as you can not to keep up with the Joneses in the diet world. Unfortunately, and I actually just had a tweet about this. I feel as though there's too much celebrating of the person who had a miraculous experience with keto or with carnivore, and then they become kind of the poster person. And if you're just not crushing it like they are, where they lost 80 pounds in five days or some, you know, I'm being hyperbolic, but you see what I'm saying. The problem is that there's a whole bunch of other people who feel like they must be doing it wrong, that there's something especially wrong with them, that their journey is just not going to be met in it. One of our best strengths and weaknesses as a species is how much we adapt to new information and new environments. The reason it can be a big weakness is all of a sudden, in spite of you having done one dozen diets before keto, you're seeing the best results for you personally that you've ever seen with something like keto. You still find a way to be disappointed with it because somebody else seems to be doing fantastic. Well, getting back to the original question, I have friends and family who have come from a a deeply metabolically deranged state and their journey has been long, all of them. It's been a long process. One of them is a cousin of mine who has just, I mean, really gone through a lot, saw some intense stalls, tried to do things about the stalls and found uh, one of those stalls was just broken on its own as though his body has just been remodeling and it's just been a process for his liver to fully heal. His liver enzymes got a lot better after just still maintaining the same diet for a period of time. We don't fully know. Metabolism is extremely complicated, but I do caution people from giving up quickly because they're looking too much to others' success stories that they want to be. They also want to be that other person. If it takes you decades to get to the place that you are now, don't be surprised if it's going to take a while to get back out of it. And perhaps you don't fully ever fully recover to the degree that you might hope that you could. I like to use my dad as an example. My dad, on his side of the family, it's rampant with type 2 diabetes. He gets diagnosed at 65, I want to say. And pretty quickly, his A1C is getting up to the point where the doctor starts talking to him about doing exogenous insulin. Well, he's quote unquote functionally cured of his type 2 diabetes and that his A1C is very low and his glucose is relatively low but he's so pathologically insulin resistant that it takes just a little bit more than a keto context of carbs. If he has like, say 30 carbs, 35 carbs in a day, his glucose is going to be spiked in the next morning. I know his triglycerides will be off the charts. He's just that. And I don't know if that's ever going to recover, but that's just how far along he got before we reversed gears. I also and more insulin resistant in a pathological way, I would say, than my sister, but I'm better than my dad. It's everyone has their own context. Everyone has their own health journey. I can never emphasize this enough that as an engineer, it's like trying to compare cars and thinking every car should be able to run like the car you saw down the street after it got, you know, picked up. No, I'm sorry. There's too many other contexts, too many other variables to look at. Well, I think that's a really important point. You know, bio-individuality rules comparison is the thief of joy. I see a lot of, I know it's done probably with good intentions, but across social media, people that are almost shameful, like if intermittent fasting works for you, awesome. And obviously I die on that sword and that's what I'm kind of known for. But there are lots of people that, you know, paleo doesn't work for them or carnivore doesn't work or vegan diets, whatever it is. And and I wouldn't advocate for a vegan diet, but that's a separate topic. But whatever your methodology is, 
that's okay. You know, what works for you and your body, because we're all individuals. And to your other point, you know, if you've been abusing your body or if you've been, you know, not metabolically flexible for a long period of time, that doesn't change overnight. Like I have women and that's really the bulk of, you know, my programs are kind of geared towards women and women kind of get a bad rap, you know, middle age, there's a lot of comparisonitis, but there's also a lot of limiting beliefs like, okay, a woman hits a certain age and it's just all downhill from there. And so it's really retraining people's brains that, yes, I know this fit pro that's probably tremendously Photoshopped on Instagram says X, Y, and Z, but I doubt that's actually what that person looks like. And in order to maintain that kind of look, if that's indeed the case, she's probably not eating the way she's sharing that she's eating. So acknowledging that it didn't take us Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I've used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armor colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armor's colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, 
fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. It's not as if all those changes happened overnight. It's going to take a while. And like we mentioned with your dad, that your dad is so metabolically inflexible that if he's not really conscientious and careful with his macros, that can you know have some significant impact on him. Now, I got another question from someone asking about whole carbs. So root vegetables, sweet potatoes, squash, which we would argue are, are whole carbs as opposed to a lot of processed ones. I guess Paul Mason believes that they will cause oxidized LDL. Are you in that camp? Do you believe that that's actually the case? And is that a concern of yours? So I love and enjoy a ketogenic diet. I love being low carb, but I'm actually not anti-carb. In fact, I'm not even per se anti-refined carb as long as you can tolerate it. This may sound like a vague answer, but this is the truth. If whatever you're consuming is not something you already have an intolerance to or something you're going to build an intolerance to, you're probably on the right track. And that's part of the problem is that I feel like a lot of times the low carb approach gets oversimplified to a degree where then people challenge it and say, wait a sec, I know people who are on a high carb diet and they're doing fine. They're thriving. Check out their blood work. It looks great. And I agree. There's many people who do that. Now, where I think I can say with some experience, I see benefit is that of ways to sustain a diet after you've become metabolically inflexible. Whatever the reason was, you became metabolically inflexible. That seems to have the best success rate of the diet options that I know thus far. Again, I'm only speaking anecdotally, but I think that's part of what plays into the popularity of keto. So with that in mind, coming back to how much do carbohydrates themselves independently cause a problem? I would start from the perspective of whether whole food or whether refined, et cetera, I believe that there's already a dose response level. The dose makes the poison and that that's probably going to be relevant on a per person basis. As I just mentioned, it's relevant for my dad. Mm -hmm. Certainly a certain level is going to get his numbers way high and in a way that doesn't come back easily, but he got to a pathogenic state, I believe. And it could be that you know, 20 year old version of him who was running a lot more and motorcycling and doing all sorts of other stuff was handling carbs just fine. I don't claim to know exactly what happened in between that period of time, but I do have an idea. 
And I think the idea comes back to this energy mismanagement that I was talking about a little bit earlier. This is why I think watching things like high triglycerides can be an excellent bellwether of something problematic to come and going to Joseph Kraft's work. If you're hyperinsulinemic, if after a full fasted period of say 12 hours, you still have high insulin, I'll bet you, you've got trouble down the road. And so to the degree with which carbs or anything ultimately results in that hyperinsulinemia, for example, persistently, I think that is going to be a problem. And I think that this is an issue with carbs from a detection standpoint is the body acts on carbohydrates. It acts to keep it within a tight delta. It doesn't do that as much with fats. So to the degree with which it say creates greater oxidation or of course, glycation in products, things along those lines, I'm a little bit skeptical at lower levels, but I do think that with really lots of hypercaloric circumstances, you can't exceed your body's capability to handle its energy storage routine effectively. And that manifests in these things that we see with like high levels of energy substrates parked in the blood. I myself would almost want to test Paul's experiment directly because now I have access to the oxidized phospholipid test. We are already doing this with some other experiments, including the last one that I just did, which has some really interesting data, by the way. Before I went so far as to say, I think that that's going to increase oxidized LDL. So for me, the jury's still out. A great answer. And one that I think will definitely assuage some of these individuals. Now, Meat Eater by Choice on Twitter said, he's curious if there will ever be a properly conducted cardiovascular risk study of high LDL in a cohort who is healthy and an animal-centric diet versus mixed cohorts. And I know that you gave this question in particular your stamp of approval. So I said, of course, I'm going to have to make sure that we ask it. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, of course, you probably are already aware I've spent, gosh, really the last three years, you know, pretty much since I wrote the article that coined the term lean mass hyperresponder, it became apparent to me, wait a second, wait, if this is really common, this group of people who in virtually every respect, they have excellent cardiometabolic markers. I could almost joke that they have reverse metabolic syndrome. You know, the five aspects of metabolic syndrome, and you have to have three of them to qualify for it. It's waist to hip ratio, it's low triglycerides and high HDL, it's hypertension, and it's high fasting glucose. And if you have three of those five, then you have metabolic syndrome. Lean mass hyperresponders are far away from all of those, or at least the ones that I know. And well, with a qualification on glucose, but that's a more complicated topic. I believe they have higher fasting glucose that may be adaptive glucose sparing given the matching insulin and C-peptide. But again, that's an aside. Point is, excellent cardiometabolic markers across the board save the one of interest, which is the cholesterol levels. Total and LDL cholesterol are sky high. So from an experiment standpoint, if you're a scientist and you're saying, I really want to test the lipid hypothesis in particular, I want to test how much this really comes down to just LDL at a as they would say in the papers, a dose-dependent log linear level. Because a cornerstone of the lipid hypothesis are those people who have the genetic disease of high LDL, known as familial hypercholesterolemia. And it's 100% true that if you have, for example, the severe form of it, which is a homozygous FH, you're potentially developing xanthomas at a very young age. Xanthomas are fatty deposits of cholesterol. You're developing angina 
at a very young age. In fact, the two scientists who got the Nobel Prize, Brown and Goldstein, the case that got them going was a poor little girl who at age three, she had xanthomas and she developed a stable angina. And she had her first MI at age six. And it's entirely understandable why that association with high LDL would create that impression. And alongside, you know, other data, why this has become kind of the de facto presumption. What I find fascinating, Cynthia, this is the thing that kind of gets my goat, is I bring up things like HDL and triglycerides with these same individuals who are very pro-lipid hypothesis. And I say, okay, okay, you're telling me you feel confident on the LDL's causality independent of context. What do you think of lean mass hyperresponders? Are they at a high risk? And generally speaking, they'll say yes, until I say, well, what if we get a study going? Because if we get a study going, we'll actually measure this. And I'm not even talking just events. The study that we're talking about doing that I have been working on the last few years since I wrote that article, which we're now getting very close to launching, it's actually going to be capturing CT angiograms. So we're really getting the physical geography of their lumen throughout the cardiovascular system. And given existing data and what the science says on this being a dose-dependent level, right now, you and me, and really mostly mass hyperresponders we know, should have very rapid development of atherosclerosis. And I'm being a good scientist and saying, they could be right. It's possible. We need these CTAs of the lean mass hyperresponders to confirm or disconfirm this, which is why even before we do the follow-up period, which is going to be one year, that baseline data will already be enormous data. Because if we have people who, for example, have been lean mass hyperresponders for two years and they have, say, an LDL of uh, 200, 300 or more, they should absolutely be showing uh, substantially different levels of atherosclerosis than likewise cohorts at their age. And I don't want to sound overly optimistic. We won't know until we get the data. But at a minimum, I don't think it's going to fully match what we see with those people who have FH. It's really interesting. You know, last night, as I was preparing for this, I pulled up my last total cholesterol panel just to be able to share with the listeners for complete transparency. My LDL was 208, my HDL was 109, and my triglycerides were 50. And this is when, in the context of a fasting insulin of 2.1, my healthcare provider just said, I don't know what to do with this. So, you know, I believe that I'm one of those lean mass hyper responders. What's interesting, though, is within my family structure, on both sides, we have a lot of vascular paths, meaning a lot of people with vascular disease. And I think that's more a reflection of, you know, my grandparents both smoked and, you know, you have a generation that ate very differently than we do right now. But I'll be curious to know as that kind of moves forward, you know, how I can participate if you would like me to, because I think it's in the effort of good science you know, I'm huge on dispelling antiquated dogma. And so if there's some opportunity to help with that, I'm all for it. Yeah, I'll give you the stock answer I give everyone because so many lean mass hyperresponders want to be involved. To be the fair process, we have to first get the IRB approved and then we'll have a recruitment phase and then there'll be a, there'll be a criteria that we have. And then I don't know past that point, but I think there may end up being some kind of lottery thing. I don't really know. But the more randomized it appears at the point of the beginning of the study, the more credibility the study has. So it's fascinating because in some sense, 
we know it's going to be a pilot study because there's no RCT. It's not like there's some people, it's nearly impossible to do one because we've gone to the lean mass hyperspondrous and we've said, hey, does anyone want to randomly be determined that they go off the diet? I'm sure you know many lean mass hyperspondrous where if they've already been on it for like two years, it's because they're committed. There's some who would like tattoo it on them. There's a 63-year-old grandfather who... I was giving a lot of my usual caveats. I was like, you know, I don't know for sure. I don't, and he just like interrupted me. And he said, look, I'm about to run a marathon with my son for the first time in my life. Cause he was always a couch potato for his whole life. And for him, this has been like a new lease on life. Yeah. He says, I don't even care if it's shortening my life, given this new quality of life that I have now. And I'm like, well, okay, to be fair, you're one of the reasons I want to get this data so badly. I want to get this data, but actually the truth is the people who I most want to get this data for are the people who don't really have a lot of choice of diets they can go with, such as epileptics, such as type one diabetics. I believe that you should be starting first with a low carb approach in those circumstances. Somebody who's just overweight for many different reasons. There's many different options that they have, but take epilepsy. If you yourself actually have more seizures when having more carbohydrates in your diet, oh my gosh, if the one reason you're not doing it is because you're concerned about your cholesterol levels, this is the stuff that keeps me up at night. This is why we've got to get this study done soon. Well, it's all so very exciting. And I know that my listeners will want to come to your website. And what I enjoyed, and I was showing this to my one of my teenage boys, was that you on your website, you have these wonderful graphics. It looks very comic book-ish but very professional, of course, but really providing, if you're very visually oriented, it's a really nice cartoon kind of graphics that people can, you know, for people who are the lay public and maybe are not familiarized with these terms, and it seems a little bit convoluted, tough to kind of understand, the visual depictions are so helpful. So bravo for doing such a nice job. But for the listeners, where can they find you? Where can they connect to your really valuable research? You are so gracious. I mean, you send out, because I'm on your email list, you actually send out you know, opportunities for people to interact, ask questions. And so you're very collaborative. How can people connect with you on social media? Where can they find you? Tell us about your website. And we'll make sure it's, of course, included in the notes, but let them know how to, to connect with you. Sure. Of course, the main website is cholesterolcode.com. I'll take the opportunity since we mentioned the study a lot. We, of course, appreciate everyone's support if you want to contribute we actually have a fully 501c3 public charity in Citizen Science Foundation, and we appreciate what everyone's been able to do. We're not actually fully done with all of our fundraising because we also need to be able to get hotel and travel for the lean mass hyperresponders to get to the center that we're doing the studying at. I'm also very active on Twitter, Dave Keto, and that's actually one of the best ways to reach me. But yeah, on cholesterolcode.com, there's also a question section just for that, and my colleague Siobhan handles that very well. Lastly, there is our Facebook groups. We have a Facebook group for just cholesterol code overall, and we have one specific to lean mass hyperresponders. Both of them are very science-centric, not advocacy-based. So whatever your interest in either the science or for that matter, and seeking advice, the members are very active there, and I think they're very fair. Well, and I have to tell you, one of the compliments that came through in the questions and comments when I posted on Twitter last night was, let Dave know that he is by far one of the nicest people on Twitter. So clearly, you know, trying to spread joy wherever you're going. Thank you so much for your time today. It's really been my pleasure. And I want to hear more about, you know, your research and, and certainly ask my listeners to check it out and donate if possible. Thank you so much for having me on, Cynthia. 
Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review. Subscribe and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.